Aren't you glad you belong to the Lord? You put your faith, your trust in Christ. You belong to Him. You're His child, and He loves you and cares for you. The Bible says He will never leave us and never forsake us. He will continue to walk through life. And that's kind of what we're talking about as we go through the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at the story of Jesus, you know, who He is and what He's done for us. And how does the story of Jesus and all that He's done for us match up with my life and what I need to be doing and learning how to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus? And I think that's what the Gospel of Mark is really all about. They're just trying to figure it out. You know, we have this, this Gospel, we have this written word in front of us, and we have these people living probably someplace in, in Rome, and they have this document in front of them, and they're learning how to, to put the life of Jesus into practice as they, they read and study these st- stories. And they're, they're putting together the pieces of, of who Jesus is based upon what he's done for us. And, and that's why we're here this morning. I'm glad that you're here. So what I want to do this morning is I want to bring, begin with just a, just a couple of quotes, if you will, from children. Um, you know, we have a bunch of grandchildren, and, and sometimes I'm absolutely mesmerized at some of the things that they say. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're articulate, sometimes they're just audacious in the things that they say. And so here's some words, some uh, conversations, some bold things that kids have made. And so I just thought we'd just begin. Ezra, age five, uh, says this. Uh, Mommy, how old will Jesus be on his birthday? Because there have been a lot many Christmases, and I worry that he just stays one year every year. He stays one year. Isn't that interesting? He's kind of putting it together. How come Jesus never grows up? Isla, age three. By the way, you can figure out why I picked that name. Isla, age three. I pledge allegiance to the flag of Captain America. Getting his, uh, his people confused. Cohen Micah, conversation with his mom, he said this. Mommy said, I'm going, it's going to be a little chilly today, buddy. So you're going to have to wear your pants. Cohen, he gaps. Did my shorts grow? Putting his short pants on. Claire, age four. We've probably all experienced this if you've been a parent before. So this, Claire says, I, I was not kicking Brady. I was just loving him with my boot. Yeah, I'm sure you were. Maddie, age five. Somebody in mommy's phone just made her very angry. Kids are watching us all the time. A conversation that Millie had with her mom. Who's coming over? Mama asks, nobody, why? You only vacuum when someone is coming over. There's probably a lot of truth to that, right? I mean, sure, we get it. Kids are smart. You know, they're bold. Last one. We've all experienced this. Mommy says this. Blow your nose and pick up that blanket off the floor. Ella says, ah, do I have to do everything? You know what? Kids are funny. They're articulate. Uh, they're very, very imaginative in the way that they would communicate. Sometimes they're bold. Sometimes the things they say, we gravitate. Sometimes they're insightful, you know. Um, the reason I, I bring these words out, because in our text this morning, we have the life of Jesus and we have the words of Jesus. And, and Jesus is going to make a, a startling statement. If he's going to make such an aud- audacious statement that the religious leaders, these people who've traveled all the way from the city of Jerusalem, uh, these religious leaders are going to look at him and they're going to think and go, who in the world does this guy think he is? The audacious claim that this guy, this miracle worker, claims to, to make. And it concerns Jesus' claim to do something that only God could do. And Jesus made this statement, and the religious leaders and those powerful people from Jerusalem begin to think in their hearts, they're reasoning in their hearts, they're not speaking this out loud, but they're having this conversation on the inside. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, they say this in their hearts, why does this guy speak this way? For crying out loud, what are his words, what is, what is he speaking this way for? 
He's saying that he can do something that only God really has the capacity to do. What kind of person is this? What kind of man is this who would make these claims to do something that only God could do? And Jesus makes some audacious claims in our text this morning. What I want to do is I want to just read through the text. Then we'll come back and and hopefully take it apart and see what we can learn. Uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Verse 4. Since they could not get to him, to get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they're thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Father, I thank you for the life of Jesus. I thank you for who he is. Father, I thank you that we have the great privilege of reading your word meditating on your word. And Father, in many ways, we do want to be still and know that you are God. And Father, we want to ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word about who Jesus is and what you would have for us this morning. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for, you for, the, for the beauty of today, the sunshine, Lord, the, the spring weather. Thank you that we can gather together as your children. Father, I pray that we would come with humble hearts desiring, seeking to learn from you and from your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be our teacher this morning through your word about what you would have for us in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So as we walk through this text, uh, what I want to do is this. I I, want to remind us that that in many ways, maybe we're not uh, that different than the people to whom this would be written to. You know, they, they would be sitting there maybe in a small little house church in, in a little building, and, and they would be hearing these words, and, and there's, there's no things like, well, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, or, or walk this way or walk this way. What, what we have is we have the life of Jesus, and we have the actions of Jesus, and we have the, ten, to, the teachings of Jesus, and then we're invited to put the story together. What, what does this story tell us about the unique person of Jesus, and how am I to respond? What am I supposed to do? So I, I want to I walk through this, and I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through this. We're, we're learning about the, the nature of Jesus. We're learning about the person of Jesus. As, as Mark begins this gospel, what he's doing is he's, he's taking us on a journey, and, and moment by moment and step by step and event after event, he's building a case for the unique person of Jesus, culminating to the fact that he's going to go to the cross, he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Who is this guy that we're talking about? And we're invited into, into that journey. It's his story and our story. And we're invited into that journey to, to try and figure out who this guy is in the response to our life. So this morning we have what I would call the audacity of Jesus. 
The audacity of Jesus is seen in verses 1 and 2 because he spoke with authority. Jesus spoke with the, the very authority of God in verses 1 and 2. Mark is, is describing a very, very chaotic scene. Um, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. He's, he was in Capernaum. We know that he was at Peter's mother-in-law's house, and, and they brought Peter's mother-in-law to him, and he healed her. And, and that night, in, in chapter 1, verse 31, it says, uh, after the sunset, all, all of these people, the, the whole town began to, to gather at the, at the door of, of, of Peter's mother-in-law's house, and there's no doubt there's this wide range of people. In the gospel, we, we continue to see crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds of people. Jesus is surrounded by people. And then he got up one morning and he left the city of, of, of Capernaum because there's so many people around him, he needed to get away. He needed to go to that solitary place and spend time away. He needed to be still before the Lord and, and, and to pray. And then he returns to, to Capernaum, if you will. And as he returns there, the, the, the chaotic scene is just, it's there again. There's just people, there's crowds and crowds of people. There's probably in Mother Peter's, uh, Peter's house, and, and we get this idea that there's so many people, they're just jam-packed. There's, there's no room for anybody else to get in the house. And notice how Mark describes what's going on. He says Jesus is preaching the word to them. The, the, he was preaching the word. The, the, the word about what? what what's so significant about, about, about the words of Jesus? I understand that no doubt there were teachers there. They had come all the way from the city of Jerusalem. They'd heard about this miracle worker. They'd heard about his word. They'd heard about all the different things that he'd been doing. So there's no doubt they're teachers of the law there. Why weren't they standing up? Why weren't they teaching? Why weren't they preaching? Why is Jesus the one coming about and doing the speaking, teaching, and preaching here in this small little house? Because Jesus had the audacity to bring to them another type of teaching. Jesus was bringing them teaching about the unique character about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist had already begun in a certain way talking about repentance and faith and, and turning from a life away from God and, and turning from their sin and embracing the Messiah, if you will. And Jesus comes in, in chapter 1, verse 14, and he begins a continuation of the same message. Chapter 1, verse 14 says this, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He was telling them about the good news of the kingdom. In other words, there's something new about the kingdom. I'm going to teach you about myself. I'm going to teach you that I'm the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. You want the Messiah who's going to come in and he's going to take over from Rome and he's going to set up the kingdom. And, and we're going we're gonna to be in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to worship. All of that's going to be true one day. But I want to tell you about a different type of Messiah. The Messiah who comes and offers himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. That's the authority that Jesus... You know what? You don't fully understand me, guys. You think you have me figured out, but you don't have me figured out. And so he comes, and based upon the authority of Jesus, he teaches and demons respond in submission. He teaches and people are healed. He teaches and lives are changed. He teaches and people are raised from the dead. He teaches in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And it says that, that the people's hearts on the road to amaze, people's hearts were burning within inside of them as they longed to be with Jesus, to hear the words of Jesus from the Old Testament, and to embrace him in the way that he would call them to live. Jesus is speaking the very, very words of God, if you will, in a mighty, powerful way. And these people gathered in this room were listening to him. They're no doubt hanging on his very, very words. Think about the age of 12. Family goes up to Jerusalem for the feast, Passover. They're leaving the city. They get about a day away, and all of a sudden they look around. And they're like, where's Jesus at? I can't find him. They go back to the city of Jerusalem. 
After three days they find him. Where do they find him? They find him in the temple. And he's with the religious leaders there. And he's having conversations with them. He's speaking to them. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 47, notice what he says. It says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Why? Because Jesus spoke the very, very words of God. John chapter uh, John chapter 12, verse 48 says that, that I speak the very, very words that God given, has given to me. So, so Jesus comes and with the authority of God speaks the very words of God. And there's no doubt this resonated about the kingdom of God deep within the hearts of these people. That he was teaching them in a new and powerful way that they could transform their very, very life. I can do miracles, but I can also change and transform your life. So Jesus comes to this house and he's, he's speaking with authority. But he's not just speaking with authority. He, he's speaking with authority for a purpose. Not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. He wants you and I, he wants them to be the object of their faith. He, he wants ultimately for you and I to trust him for who he is. Not just for the miracles that he can do, but for who he is. And we see that in verses 3 through 5. The scene gets worse. It's a chaotic scene. The house is there. There's so many people around the house that the door is blocked and they're spilling out in the front yard or all over. And there's these four guys. They've got a problem. I would imagine they're in the city of Capernaum. They've heard about this miracle worker. Maybe they've seen him. Maybe you've seen him from a distance. They've heard his teaching. They've heard his preaching. But they've also heard that he can do miracles. So these four guys have a friend. He's paralyzed. And they're like, I don't know about you. We need to get Bill. We need to get in to see Jesus. We need to get in there. And I can imagine them grabbing him on his mat and trying to get through the front door, and they're getting to the front door, and people are like, no, you ain't getting in here. What are you going to do? Well, they go out to the outside, and on the outside, there's probably, there's a stairway going up there on the outside, flat roof outside. Let's go, guys. So they've been taking him on his mat and hauling him up. They get into the top. What are they going to do? Well, they begin to dismantle, unroofing the roof is the way it's described. Unroofing, the, they begin to dismantle the roof, if you will. Probably clay, maybe some leaves, sticks and stuff. Three feet beams. They're finding a place to begin to tear through and, and, and pull it all apart. And to begin to dig away all the dirt and the clay and the, all the stuff in there. And we, we don't have any responses to anybody's reaction. If this is Peter's house, we don't have Peter's response. But let, let me ask you something. If, if somebody came into your house and started dismantling one of your rooms... What would you do? How would you respond? Would you respond a little bit? I think you would. We have no reaction here. They're digging. They're banging. And what's interesting is in the Gospel of Luke, it says this. It says they dig the hole, and it seems to me that Jesus is in the middle, and they drop the guy right in front of Jesus. How you doing? Oh, I, listen, it's not on me. They, it's them. I, I, I told them not to do it. They, they dropped this guy right in the middle of Jesus. They wanted to get this guy to Jesus. They knew that Jesus had something that this guy needed. And there's no doubt, physical. He was paralyzed. He'd been laying on a mat. He was limited in his mobility. He was limited in so many ways. But they had such a passion. They had such a desire. They had such an understanding of the nature and the character and the power of Jesus that they were going to do whatever they could to get this guy to Jesus. And I have no doubt that they'd heard about his preaching, heard about his teaching, seen him do miracles. Remember, they're gathered in this, in this room, they're gathered in this house, and what is Jesus doing? He's preaching the word, no doubt, faith, repentance, trust, change your life, put your faith, put your trust in me, consistently sharing that message as he would do. They'd go about healing. There's no doubt that this is a, a, a felt need. He, he wanted and desired to be paralyzed. There's no doubt. 
But notice the persistence of the guys. Notice what they've done. They barge through all of the obstacles. They're persistent. They're sacrificial. They're doing a lot of things in order to get this guy to Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds. And when I read this, I, I, I look at my own life and I examine my own life. Does Jesus see faith in my life? Oh, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe I'm going to heaven. Jesus has washed away. I, I, I believe all of it. But is there another element of living faith? Or I'm walking and stepping out in faith and trusting him for big things. Notice how in verse 5 he's commended. When Jesus saw their faith. Remember, they haven't said anything. We have no record of anybody saying anything. Jesus sees something. He sees their faith. He sees what they've done. By the way, this won't be the, the last time that we will see people's faith being exhibited, going out of their way, if you will, to look to Jesus and trust him for difficult and hard things. Over and over in the Gospels, we see that. A Roman soldier, a pagan soldier, comes to Jesus for the healing of his servant, Matthew chapter 8. A Canaanite woman whose daughter is demon-possessed comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I need your help. I have no place else to go. And this woman with a bleeding, a bleeding, some kind of hemorrhage, she's bleeding on the inside, and she passed through all the people, and she says, listen, if I just get near, if I just get in, and I just touch it, if I just touch it, I'm going to get healed. And in the Gospels we have over and over, we see people coming to Jesus in faith, wanting and desiring something from him, something that many times was physical. But I think what's really, really important for us to understand is this. Jesus always did his miracles for a purpose. When Jesus did something, he was wanting the people to have eyes to see and ears to hear. In other words, to connect the dots about who he was and what he would do and God's plan in his life. He wanted them to connect the dots about the nature and the character ultimately of who he is. Jesus always did miracles a purpose so that we would learn something about him. At the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, in Cana of Galilee, he's at a wedding and he performs a miracle there. And, and notice how it's described in John chapter 2 verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs. Notice what he says, a miraculous sign. What is a sign? A sign means this, that you're going to get something for. If I'm going to hold up a sign pointing in a direction, it, it's, it's communicating something to you. This is a miraculous sign. He performed in Canaan, Galilee. He thus, what, revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. In other words, through the miraculous signs, through what Jesus is doing, they're getting a picture of God's glory, full of grace and truth. John focuses a lot on the glory of God and the glory of who Jesus is. And what Jesus is doing, he's inviting people to put their faith and their trust in him for who he is and what he would do for their life. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Put your faith in me. Trust me for what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice on the cross for sin. Will you put your faith and your trust in me for the salvation of your very soul? And Jesus looks at these people, all five of them, I believe, and he observes their faith. So the question I ask myself, the question I ask you is, are we living that kind of faith life? Are we stretching ourselves out with our time, talent, and treasure, all of the stuff that we have? Are, are we living our lives by faith? Or are we just kind of coasting at what God would have for us? What are the difficulties and challenges that we're facing in life? And have we laid them at the feet of Jesus and asked him to help us in the difficulties and challenges of life? Hebrews 11.6 very clearly says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person who lives and walks by faith. 
I want to please God by the way that I would live, by stepping out and embracing faith in an entirely different way. So Jesus comes into this house. He begins to teach, preach. He's speaking authority, uh, with authority. And, and he wants these, these people, all of them, not just these five men, but, but all of the people there, he wants them to make him the object of their faith. And, and then he did something that just threw the religious leaders in a tizzy inside of their hearts and heads. He, he made a statement that he for, could forgive sin. We see that in verses 5 through 7. They're all gathered together, and the, and the man is lowered right in, in front of them, maybe in the middle, as the Gospel of Luke says, and, and he's there. And, and, then, and then Jesus makes a statement in verse 5. Son, you, your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus make such an incredible statement such as that? Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe... Maybe what Jesus is trying to do, and maybe what the gospel writer Mark is trying to do, is trying to get us to, to see and to expand our understanding of the nature and the character of who Jesus is, that he is beyond a miracle worker. He can do mighty and powerful things. But make the connection to who he is, the power that he holds, the authority that he has, make the connections to something deeper in our lives, that you and I are separated from a holy God because of sin. And what Jesus is going to make the connection to is what? The deeper level of understanding of who he is. I have come to live to speak about the kingdom of God, but have also come to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. That is part of the messianic mission of Jesus Christ. You and I, people can be reconciled to a holy God. How? When we repent of our sin, when we turn from who we are, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, when he becomes the object, not just of our faith, but of our love and our devotion for who he is and what he's done for us. And going to the cross and offering himself is a sacrifice for sin. And by the way, in the book of Colossians, it talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory that God would actually come and make his abode in me through the Spirit of God. That's mighty and powerful teaching from the life of Jesus. And there's no doubt that the religious leaders, being from Jerusalem, being the, the top, there's no doubt that they would know and understand that Jesus would be speaking of the kingdom of God. They knew that. They understood all that. But what they didn't understand, that this mighty, powerful Messiah was going to come, and he's going to actually do all of these miracles and do the greatest miracle of all, go to the cross, die on it, and then rise back from the dead after three days, ultimately for the forgiveness of sins. Notice in verse 5 again it says, Son, your, your sins are forgiven. Who, who's doing the forgiving there? It seems to me that Jesus is the one making the declaration of the forgiveness of sin. Son, your sins... Wait a minute here. What right, what right do you, Jesus, teacher... I, I, I've seen the miracles that you've done. I've heard your teaching... I, I've watched and, and seen your, your authority, but what right do you have to forgive sin? And that's what made him go nuts. Look at verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He, Jesus, you have the audacity to say that you can forgive sins. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? No one has the right to forgive sin. Only God ultimately has the right to forgive sin. You ever offended God? You ever sinned against him? So there's a little boy. And he disobeyed his mom, so he got his little slate chalkboard, kind of like that. And he wrote, Mom, I'm sorry I was bad. If you forgive me, wipe this out. The next time the little boy passed by that slate, it had been wiped clean. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for that little boy? 
my mommy forgives me. Ultimately, God forgives me. Now, now take that to a personal level, that Jesus wants to wipe away all of your sin, all of my sin. He, he wants to do that. He wants to take it away. And, and he can and will do that because we know the story that Jesus is ultimately going to the cross and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. He's going to pay for my sin and he's going to wipe it away as far as east is from the west. We can experience the ultimate forgiveness of sin because of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And in their mind, the religious leaders are going nuts. Bells are going off. Ding, 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 ding. Wait, wait a minute. Who does this guy think he is? The audacity to say that he has the willingness, the opportunity to forgive sins. And notice the next level. Why does Jesus have this ability to forgive us of our sin? Look at verse 8. The story grows and the, the understanding of Jesus gets deeper and deeper. Verse 8 says this. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, I don't know about you, but that would kind of blow me away. Kind of blows me away. Jesus knows what you're thinking right now. He knows you're making plans for lunch right now. He knows that. I'm being a little bit silly, but, but does that blow you away a little bit? That Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the heart and minds of people. And what they're doing is just they're reasoning in their minds. They know exactly what's going on here. They know the declaration that Jesus made. They're reasoning, they're thinking within their hearts and minds. And inside of them, they're dialoguing. Oh, wait a minute, something is wrong here. This man, this guy who says he's the Messiah is making a claim that only God can make. So there must be something wrong with him. He must be a blasphemer and he must be deserving of death because he's making a claim that he's ultimately God. He's saying that he can do something that only God could do. And I think what Jesus is going to do, he's going to tell them and he's going to demonstrate the very purpose of the miracle. The very purpose of the miracle is to demonstrate something deeper about their understanding about the nature and the character of Jesus as the Messiah. He's going to broaden their understanding, if you will. And he's going to make that point with the religious leaders. What's interesting is this particular point in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, for worth we're at, to chapter 3, verse 6, we have an extension of controversies with the religious leaders. Controversy, Lord of the Sabbath. Controversy, who are you hanging out with? Controversy over fasting. It gets to the point in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what do they want to do? They want to partner now with Herodian, and we want to get rid of this guy by the name of Jesus. Because they do understand the claims that Jesus is making. And they're so bothered about who he is and what he's doing that they don't like it and they want to get rid of him. And there's no doubt in our text, they believe that clearly Jesus is making himself out to be a blasphemer. One who is cursed of God because he's making a claim to do something that only God can do. That only Jesus can do. And what Jesus is going to do is this. He's going to confront their understanding about who he is and what he's done. Listen, you can't. You can't be wishy-washy about Jesus. You can't be middle ground about Jesus. In the text, he's either a blasphemer or, according to him, he's either God. You, you can't walk down this rope thinking that I can live in two worlds. Jesus is going to make an incredible claim here that he has the power to forgive sin. He knows exactly what they're reasoning in their hearts. Why? Because he's ultimately God incarnate. He's doing things that only God can do. And that's what's bothering them. And it should bother us because it tells us something about who God is and who Jesus is. 
1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, The Lord looks on my heart. That's God. 1 Kings 8, verse 39, For you know the hearts of all men. God. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, For you, uh, the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every intent of the hearts. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. Ezekiel 11, verse 5, I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Only God has the ability to read the heart and mind. And now what we're finding out is Jesus knows what they're reasoning inside their heart. In other words, there's something different and unique about Jesus. Jesus has the audacity to say, I can forgive sin. Jesus has the audacity to read our very hearts. And he knows what's going on. And you know what else? Jesus has the audacity to know what's inside of our hearts. He knows what's inside of every human being. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, notice what it says. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men. Why? For he knew what was in man. God knows what's going on inside my heart. Jesus knows what's going on inside my heart. Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of these people. And he's trying to open and expand their understanding about who he is, saying, yes, I can do miracles. I can do all of the things, but ultimately I've come to deal with something inside of you. And it's this idea that we all need to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to a holy God for who he is. And to offer proof one step further, notice how he refers to himself in verses 9 and 10. He referred to himself as the son of man. Jesus is going to test them and he's going to open their hearts and minds to hopefully understand a little bit more about the depth of who he is and what he's come to do. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, What is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take up your mat, and go home. What Jesus is doing is he is opening up and extending the invitation to them to think about someone in the Old Testament. Think about Daniel. Think about the prophet Daniel. Think about who he is and what he's doing. And what I want you to know and I want you to understand, I want you to think about this idea that we are separate from a holy God and that you and I, every one of us, need to be forgiven of our sin. What's the harder thing to do? Well, the harder thing to do would be to speak and to heal this person. Why? Because obviously that's observable. If I just say, oh, Marion, uh, your, your sins are forgiven. Go, go in peace. Go. How would you prove that? I mean, how, how can you prove it? a spiritual reality. You, you, you can't prove anything like it. It's something on the inside. But what Jesus is going to do is this. Jesus is going to, again, he's going to make another audacious statement. Look at verse 10 again. But that you may know, know from, know from experience. I'm going to show you from experience that I have the power to forgive sins. And I'm going to give you a demonstration. You people come to an understanding about who I am. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Son of Man, Son of man. Why does Jesus use son of man? Why not son of David? Why not Messiah? Why not Christ? Why not the anointed one? Because I believe that in Daniel, it alludes to the the Messiah who would come to the throne. And one day he's going to rule with power and he's going to be given authority. In in Daniel chapter 7, we had this allusion to the Messiah, what he would do and what he would come and how he would one day rule. And, And over and over in the gospel of Mark, we have this idea that Jesus speaks to himself as the son of man. I think what he's doing is this. You have your idea of the Messiah, and you have your idea of the Son of God and the Anointed. You have all of these preconceived ideas of the Messiah and the kingdom. But what you don't have is you don't have an understanding of me as the Son of Man who's going to come and offer himself as a sacrifice, 
as a ransom on the cross for sin. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to redirect them, if you will, through this miracle that he does have the power to forgive sin. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They're missing the connection that Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. William Lane Craig said this about the significance of the title of the Son of Man. I want to put it up here. I think it's interesting. Son of Man is often thought to indicate the humanity of Jesus, just as the reflex expression Son of God indicates his divinity. In fact, the opposite is true. The Son of Man was a divine figure in the Old Testament book of Daniel who would come at the end of the world to judge mankind and rule forever. Thus, the claim to be the Son of Man would, in fact, be a clear claim to divinity. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. Guys, open your minds and your heart to the understanding of who I am, what I've come to do, and what I've come to offer you. I am the Messiah but ultimately I'm the Messiah that will come and offer myself as, an, as a sacrifice for sin on the cross for all humanity. Look again at verse 10, but you may, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. What's he do? He, he points back to a sacrificial death. In order to be forgiven of sin, Jesus knows he has to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice. He's ultimately pointing to them, I have the authority, no one's going to take my life, I have the authority to lay down my life, which is, which is what he's going to do. And I'm going to lay it down so that people can be forgiven of sin. And then Jesus demonstrates his power and authority to forgive sins. Look at verse 11 and 12. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. This has got to be pretty wild. I mean, I, I can imagine people are like, wouldn't you be looking? I would. Jesus made these claims, audacious claims, and they're sitting there looking at this guy who's laying on a mat in front of him. And notice what it says. He got up, exactly what Jesus says. He took his mat, exactly what Jesus said, walked out in full view of all of them. He walked out. His life was transformed, not only on the inside, but on the outside, as this man could fully walk. Can you imagine how his life has changed? He's been paralyzed. I mean, a baby has to learn to walk. Here's this man who's been paralyzed. He gets up and he walks out in full view of everyone. What an incredible day that this man had when he had this encounter with the person of Jesus. Know and understand and appreciate who Jesus is and all that he's done for us and all that he can and will continue to do. So from our text, we, think, we see things like this, that, that the authority of Jesus, the words of Jesus, we can read and study and meditate. We can be still and know that we can trust his words for who he is because he was so connected with, with God. He was so connected with his heavenly father that, that we can trust him with our very, very lives. That we, that we can live a life of faith. That we can step out in faith in the difficulties and challenges of life. And those difficulties and challenges of life invite us to put our faith and our trust in him knowing that he knows exactly what's going on in our life and he will stay with us and, and help us as we walk through those things. Notice what it says, the last verse. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Mark is building a case for the unique character of Jesus. Will we praise him? Will we honor him? Will we glorify him? Will we worship him? Will we continue to be amazed at who he is and what he's done? The fact that this Jesus can transform and change people's lives on a, in an instant, in a moment of time. We can look to him. We can trust him. And probably the most important theme drawn from this is the fact that we have the forgiveness of sin. Ultimately, what Jesus was dealing with this, but something inside of 
that man, something inside of those men, something inside of them, they needed to be reconciled to a holy God because of this thing called sin. And Jesus is going to perform a miracle to open their hearts and minds to a better understanding of who he is. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be portrayed. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. And then I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for sin. The physical healing is, is only for the now. And as, as important as that is for a paralyzed person to experience new life, being healed is, is powerful. But Jesus was dealing with something even more powerful, the fact that we can be cleansed on the inside and we can enjoy a right and pure relationship. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that our lives have been transformed, that we've been forgiven of our sin. Father, I thank you for this community of people, that we are transformed, we are new on the inside because of the Spirit of God living inside of us. Father, we honor you, we glorify you, we praise you for who you are and what you've done. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.